Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Marketing Today. I'm your host, Alan Hart, managing partner of Atomic, combining brand science and creative fire. Today on the show, I have Drew Miller, founder and CEO of Rollcast Advisors, based in Austin, Texas. Rollcast is a marketing strategy consultancy focused on helping high-growth B2B companies create and implement their first marketing strategy, build their marketing department, and deliver tangible bottom-line results. Prior to Rollcast, Drew spent 15 years at Dell. He also spent four years in the Army as an infantry officer, attended University of Virginia for his undergraduate studies, got his MBA at UNC Keenan Flagler's Business School. Drew's on this show today to share when and how fast growth B2B firms should get started with marketing. Drew, welcome to the show. Tell me a little bit about Rollcast Advisors. I know it's not your typical marketing consultancy. Yeah. Hey, Alan, thanks so much for having me. I really, really appreciate the chance to to, uh, to catch up with you and share a little bit about Rollcast and in my perspective on on marketing in general. But uh, yeah, I started, started Rollcast um, last year uh, with a focus on helping um, small, usually early stage, but high growth B2B companies create their first marketing strategy and internet strategy into an execution plan and then uh, get a marketing team hired and, and activated and, and start delivering results for the business and, and set them up to have a great marketing competency long-term. How does a fast-growth B2B company determine whether they're ready for marketing? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a great question. And you know, if you think about it in contrast to a, a B2C company where you know, in the very, very earliest stages of life for a, a consumer-oriented company, you've got to have a fairly robust marketing presence just to get the word out and let your, let your target audience know that you exist. In B2B, you can typically go longer without a heavy focus on, on a full marketing department. Um, you know, having said that, um, there are some elements of marketing mix which makes sense to go after right away, you know, early on in, in, the, in the life of a B2B company, but those are going to tend to be more around making sure your value proposition is tight, making sure it's articulated in messaging that'll really resonate with your target customers. But from there, you know, you're largely going to have your sales force carry that message to your, your first set of customers. But once you start to hit some critical mass on your base of initial customers, the size of your sales team, and, and you get some momentum going on revenue, you know, you get to a point where you can really get some scale and some true lift and acceleration um, in the, the overall productivity and performance of your sales team by building out a, um, a, more, um, a more full marketing discipline. And, you know, my generic rule of thumb is once companies have hit 
uh, five people, five salespeople, and are generating roughly on the order of $5 million in revenue, they're typically going to get scale advantages to that marketing team, or excuse me, to the sales team out of a strong approach to marketing, and they're going to be generating enough revenue to where they can start to afford um, to invest in marketing some. What is it about five people, five salespeople, or $5 million that allows for marketing to be helpful? Yeah. So, you, you know, the, the, the most typical path I've seen for for smaller B2B companies is, um, you know, their first go-to-market efforts are entirely driven by the, the sales team. And that makes sense because you've got to go out and you've got to have heavy degrees of engagement directly with customers, start to build relationships and trust and work through those, um, you know, you know, b- building that initial base of, of business. So that's almost always the go-to-market footprint that's out there first. And teams come to know and trust that. And you, you get into an operating mode where you understand what kind of what size of territory a salesperson can cover and, and how much revenue they can generate and what, what sort of quota they should have and what the condition of their pipeline should be. So that tends to be this you know, elemental building block for go-to-market in, in earlier stage B2B companies. And so if you assume that as a starting point and then you start to bring more robust marketing into play, five salespeople tends to be the magic number because you know, most commonly you're looking at productivity lift on a per salesperson basis of around 20%. And this is a somewhat generic number, but it's it, it's my operating rule of thumb. And if you do that across a team of five salespeople, you've essentially taken them to the capacity of of having six salespeople. You've now allowed five people to be as productive as six. And then you just play that back into the dollars and cents and the cost to do the marketing that gives them that level of productivity roughly equivalent to what it would have cost them to put another salesperson in the field. So that's when you start to hit some break-even rules of thumb uh, against it. And then the great thing is that initial level of marketing investment continues to scale and add productivity growth when they move to six salespeople, seven salespeople, eight, nine, and and so forth. And so you can now provide that nice 20% boost in performance across those folks without as much investment. And then, you know, you start to hit more inflection points as you move forward where you've got to invest more in marketing. You need more people. Um, you need to put more dollars against activating your message. But then, you you know, you, you find the right points in time to, to do that in the maturity of the organization. So if I'm a B2B owner today and I've got five salespeople and I'm thinking about hiring that six, you're saying marketing can help me achieve the output of six as long as I put that money into marketing. I've got to, I've got to not put that money in my pocket, but actually invest it in the marketing to get that boost. Yeah, that, 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 that's right. That's right. And once again, it's kind of rule of thumb. And so the situation for each business is going, to be, is going to be a little bit different. But that's most commonly what I've seen is if you take roughly the cost of that sixth salesperson, you invested in marketing and you start to do some smart activation against a well-thought-out strategy that you really get uh, the lift of the sixth salesperson. And the nice thing is that that improvement in productivity continues to scale as you add more folks to the sales team. So I've made that decision. I'm gonna go. In, I'm gonna invest in marketing. Where do I start? Yeah, it's um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And what I've found with my clients is the the first things that they really need are some work on their core messaging, because uh, they'll usually be in a situation where um, on their best day, you know, the CEO or the best salesperson can just absolutely knock it out of the park with how they engage with a customer and what they say in that meeting 
but you don't yet have um, that level of effectiveness and that level of consistency across everybody in the sales team. And so one of the ways that you drive toward that is you codify, you, you get down in writing what the core message is, and then you've now got a building block through which you can develop sales age, you can develop a variety of marketing materials, you can improve the web presence, but it comes down to um, getting crisp on messaging that really brings to life your core value proposition, the problem you solve, or the opportunity that you make available to your target customers. And so that tends to be step one. You know, the, the next thing against that comes a, a marketing strategy that makes sense relative to the core business strategy. And, and, you know, the two pieces need to be linked together really well. And so, you know, organizations that have thought through, you know, with, with a certain amount of detail, who is our target customer base? And which specific, um, which specific elements within that target customer base do we want to focus on the most and can take stock of the level of awareness that those target customers have that you exist and where the stages in relationship are. You know, once you, you step back and you look at that, you've kind of got the building blocks that say, hey, we need a marketing strategy to complement our sales strategy that's heavily focused in this particular set of customers where 30% of them are, you know, aware that we exist, 70% are not. And inside of the 30% of them that are aware that we exist, we're doing, you know, we're doing business with 5% of them. And that really starts to, you know, put some macro shape to the marketing strategy. And then, you know, you, you step back and you say, well, where do these people congregate? Where do they go to pursue information to help them make better decisions? Um, does it tend to be, you know, they concentrate in physical places like conferences and events. Do they concentrate in online places like certain discussion forums um, or their their um, groups within you know, popular platforms like LinkedIn and Twitter that they're really tuned in on? Or are they paying attention to certain news sites? But as you start to understand where they go to pursue information, you've now got some more definition of of where you should should go and talk to them. So at that stage, if you've got message, if you've got a pretty tight understanding of target customer set and you've got a pretty good understanding of where they go to consume information, you can enact a marketing strategy that helps you figure out how to say the right things to the right people at the right place at the right time. And that's kind of the core of the marketing marketing strategy. And then from there, you're now in a position to turn the strategy into an execution plan. And this is okay if, if the strategy tells us our high-level goals, execution plan is what are the nuts and bolts of what we need to do? What are the mechanics of what we need to put in place? What actions do we need to take? What timetable will we do that on? What's the specific cost of these pieces? And then from there, you know, from that execution plan, that then dovetails into getting started with the execution and typically hiring in a company's first junior marketing resource to, to go after the, the, um, the initial pieces of execution. Great. You beat me to the punch on uh, when, when you make that first hire. So you've got to have the strategy before, before you put people behind it. Yeah, that's really been you know that's that that's been my um, that's been my thesis all along is that you know the 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 best companies or the ones who get the most lift out of marketing are going to have thought through their core messaging and their strategy before they bring in a, a junior execution person uh, to go and activate that strategy because otherwise what ends up happening is you know you have a, a leadership team that maybe had some initial ideas of what should um, that junior person come in and do, but it's not necessarily against a broader marketing strategy. And they go and execute that first handful of, of things. But after that, it becomes a little bit of a random walk um, as to what they go do next. And they typically then don't have the guidance that they need to, to keep pushing forward and keep adding value for the company. So I think if you do if you do strategy first, um, then you really position that first junior person for a lot of success 
and a, um, a, a pre-structured environment in which they can, can go do what the company needs for them to. And it also helps you understand when are you really in position to add that second person, the third person, so forth, on, on down the line and, and flesh out additional competencies within marketing. Now, you spent 15 years at Dell. I mean, that's one of the world's biggest marketers. What did you learn at a big company like that that applies to really small? It was a real exciting transition for, for me out of Dell into creating Rollcast. And, and, and part of the reason that I did it was to help small companies learn from, benefit from some, some big company lessons. And I think, you know, from as with any situation in life, you you draw some lessons from that experience of exactly what you want to do. And then also some lessons on, hey, if you had it all to do over again, how much you do things differently. And for the lessons that you know apply from what big companies do for marketing that I think have direct applicability into smaller early stage companies, you know, you get into um, you always want to know your customer. You want to honor your customer in, in the ways that you create message, you, you communicate with them. Um, you want to speak in ways and places that really matter to them, and, and increasingly do it in a way that's a that it's a two way street. You know, the the, the days of one way conversations or one way marketing are, are are long behind us, and it's really you know the efforts that you put against marketing should be to begin to form relationships with people, and relationships take two way conversations, and so you know that that matters um, that matters a ton. And you know another thing that transcend is just that this matters whether you're you're giant or or, or small but want to become giant is that brand just matters so much. And, and brand is not what you say about yourself. Brand is, is what your customers would, would say about you when you're not around. And part of the way that you achieve um, you know, that level of, of brand and that definition of brand is what you do through your, your marketing engine, but it's also what you do through your sales process, the nature of the products or services you provide the support that you give to those, the overall value that you deliver to your customers. And I think that you know marketing in big companies or small can play a tremendous role in making sure that a company stays true to and and, and honors um, the value proposition that, that customers expect from them. And so you know those are those are a lot of the things that I see mattering, whether a company is real big or real small. You know if you if you flip the coin and you look at the stuff that that I learned in a in a bigger company that I would advise small companies to think about differently. You know it, it sort of says. Hey, there's pieces of infrastructure in marketing. There's data, there's tool sets, there's process, there's the ways that you measure marketing that if you can start them out correctly, and by correctly, I mean not just supporting your operational model today, but move forward years down the road and say, what style of customer data are we going to need? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
what style of tools and process and measurements are going to be important to us in design with that in mind from inception, then you'll save yourself a lot of headaches further down the road. But because what becomes really challenging as organizations get bigger and bigger, if you don't have the right data models in place, if you don't have the right tools, the right measurement techniques, the right process, pushing that into a larger organization, you know, you're always displacing something else that was there before you're trying to cobble together disparate systems um, that are already in place. That's just a lot harder. And so a lot of what I counsel companies on is get it started right from the beginning and, and make sure that what you're doing today is, is relevant to you, you know, years down the road. The, the other thing that I really try to help companies do is, is we stand up the marketing discipline is from day one, make it a function that's really understood, believed in, and held accountable by key stakeholders in sales in, in finance, because what what can become really challenging if those relationships aren't intact and you know fully transparent and highly trusting, is you get down the road and you know marketing's got to be accountable for results into the sales team, and then by extension it's got to be accountable for results into the CFO. But if you don't have believability in that, you don't have rigor around that, and you're not held to a high standard for accountability. Ultimately, what what needs to exist is high functioning, high trust, high transparency relationships is just going to fall apart. And so that's really what I what I try to help you know younger organizations build from the start is that infrastructure of data and tools and process, but also the critical, very human element of infrastructure of relationships and um, in trust and common language and in shared objectives between functions. Picking up on your marketing accountability piece in particular, I mean that's hugely important. And I think going back early in my career, I'm going to on something else you said about brand. I tried to stay away from using the word brand in a B2B context. And it just seemed like every time I said that, I thought I was talking about fonts and colors and pretty pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and what I've noticed over the last, say, five to seven years, in particular, probably the last five, there's been this huge shift of B2B companies thinking about, no, brand really does matter. And I'm, I'm wondering... I've got some thoughts on that, but I, I wonder, what do you think about that? What, have you Did you see the same thing? Um, and what would you attribute that shift to? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, my, my sense over that timeline, Alan, is while we shied away from calling it brand, and to a certain degree for the reasons that you, you know, you talked about, as brand would always bring up these ideas of, hey, it's all about an aesthetic or a font choice or a logo or something like that. You know, while we shied away from talking about brand, the essence of brand, the true essence of brand still really mattered, which is what value proposition do we consistently deliver to our customers? And I don't mean say to our customers, I mean, what do we truly deliver to our customers? So then what is the real reputation that we have with them uh, in their minds? Like, I think that's always been important. Um, And then, you know, over the last five, seven, 10 years, that um, essence has been allowed to to be called brand and have some resonance and have some currency in the B two B space. Um, I think it's just been a little bit of a you know ch- change in the term of art, and folks now understand that use of brand to be shorthand not for aesthetic choices, but for what what is our story with our customers, and do we truly live that story every day to the degree that that's the story they tell about us also, um, and and that's I think become more and more powerful. And, and, you know, part of the reason it matters more now than ever, you know, earlier in the conversation, I talked a lot about how you tend to have B2B organizations that are sales driven from go to market early in their existence. And I think that's, a, you know, that's, that's, that's classic. And I think it's got a lot of value, um, continues to have a lot of value. 
But the way that customers buy, whether it's in a consumer context or in a business context, is changing. And the role that a sales, uh, a professional salesmaker plays in that context is changing shape over time. Because customers now, whether it's consumer or business oriented, want to do more self-education, more investigation upstream and go self-direct and get themselves smart on a topic before they engage with an expert from a company called a salesperson. And, um, uh, and so you know, what that means is all of that information that the would-be customer will find out there about you, whether it's things you've said about yourself or what the press has said or what their peers have said in, you know, typically in social media and other forums, you know, that matters a lot. And it really is influencing, um, you know, the, the path to success for a lot of companies. And I think that that is allowed to be called brand. And I think that's, that's elevated in people's minds. So let's step back. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I think I'm going to start referring to this segment as couch and crystal ball. So if I step back and I think about Drew, you think about Drew, what fuels you? you know, what, what's driving you? And, and marketing and, and you as a person? Yeah, you know, I, I'm really heavily wired around a sense, of, a sense of inclusion and like inclusion in a way that's rooted in fairness and people having access to, you know, the, the best things possible for them that matter to them and in, a, in a, um, a balanced transfer of value for them to get those things and just good give and take in relationships to to do it. And I realize that's a little bit, you know, that's definitely some couch kind of stuff, <laughs> some, some, some pie in the sky a little bit, if you will. But w- the reason that that matters to me and it matters in the context of marketing and why I'm passionate about marketing is marketing done well forms meaningful relationships between companies and the people who buy their stuff. And the meaningful relationships happen because the company is really, really good at delivering something that's really, really important to that customer. And the customer turns around and says, I am, I am glad to have the opportunity to give you value in return because you've done something that's so meaningful and important for me and you've done it so well that it's more than worth my dollars um, that I'm now going to turn around and, and hand to you. And that's this, you know, that comes from the sense of inclusion, the sense of fairness, the sense of access to things that are valuable. And really connecting those those nodes between um, between supply and 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 demand and, and truly making those things happen in an efficient way where people step back at the end of the day and go, man, I'm glad it went down like that because that's my my day is a whole lot better because I bought that thing or my day is a whole lot better because I I sold that thing and I'm I'm coming away with a smile on my face. I love that, love that. So, what brands or companies do you follow or you think others should follow? You know, it's. I, I'd, I'd say for me, and what I would what I would kind of advise your your listeners on is it's less about the specific brands or companies mm-hmm. that I follow, and perhaps more about um, a perspective I have on on what good looks like, and then maybe people can kind of play that out to their world and, and find the companies that are in their world tend to follow these characteristics. But I think, you know, we hear, we all hear a ton about big data and we know that marketing is increasingly driven um, uh, on, on algorithm and, um, you know, with increasing doses of, of automation, which can all be a great thing if companies put it to use against a philosophy of what can I do for my customers rather than what can I do to my customers. And it's a subtle difference, but it's really, really important because the brands that do it for their customers rather than to their customers make two things happen. 
One is, you know, the for their customers goes back and it serves this interest I have around connecting people who need stuff with people who are selling that stuff. Um, and, and that, you know, that, that feels pretty good. The other aspect of it is the, the big data thing, the algorithmically driven marketing thing only works um, and continues to get better and better when would-be customers offer up more data about themselves, want to share more data about themselves because a company is so good at using that data to their benefit and fine-tuning the offerings that they have and the way that they approach that customer based on the more that they know about them. And so, you know, you know, one, one company to look at, for instance, is, is Pandora. Passionate users of Pandora are happy to surrender more and more information about themselves to Pandora because the playlists get better and better. And so that, that's an example of where, hey, it adds a lot of value. You've connected somebody who really wants something with somebody who has something in a way where somebody says, I want to tell you more and more about myself all the time because every time I do, the offering gets better and better. That's, a, that's like a you know, high potential to thrive um, you know, business, business model, particularly from a marketing perspective where, where a lot of data is required. And the other thing is if you just step back from it, it's this, on the one hand, that can feel like the future of marketing. On the other hand, it's as old as time. I mean, it's the fundamental essence of human relationships. You tend to have good relationships with people who've got your best interest at heart. And the more you open up and share to them, the more and more value and benefit and friendship and trust and support they can provide back to you. It's sort of, it's at the core of every one of the relationships in our lives that really matters to us. And so, you know, as a company, as a brand, we want to figure out like, how do I in an authentic way serve that model, you know, with, with my customer? How do I make it so that they're really, really glad they did business with me and increasingly glad that they shared information uh, with me because every time they do it, I, I give them something better than they thought was possible. You just talked about one thing you thought good companies are going to be tilting towards in the future. Is there anything else you'd predict for the future of marketing? Yeah, I think it kind of, you know, it kind of goes along on on the same themes. I, I think that, you know, the, the, the inescapable things that are in, in, in front of us for the, you know, for the near to medium term future is marketing is going to be more and more data driven. It's going to be more and more digital, but that's really just kind of from a tools perspective. I think from a philosophical perspective, you know, it's got to be increasingly integrated into the natural way that people want to engage with a company, which that's through the customer's eyes. What's the natural way they want to engage with the company? If we flip it around and look at it from company's eyes, that means you need to have seamless integration between a sales and marketing process the nature of the product or service that you actually deliver, the way that you support it, and that the way the way that you expose yourself to be, you know, to be to be bought again or or expanded upon, and so it's a sense of integration um, across uh, you know all these functions. So di- digital and 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 data driven is not just against the marketing envelope; it's against the full level of interaction with the customer. And the other thing is, you know, it kind of goes back to the sense of you know what, what are you going to do for your customer rather than what are you going to do to your customer. I think marketing is just going to become increasingly helpful. And, you know, the, the companies that, that pursue marketing well, they are going to understand how to earn trust with their customers and they're going to honor that and truly be trusted um, because they're going to be helpful uh, 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 above and beyond. I, I like that a lot, that marketing is going to become helpful. There's a lot of people out <laughs> in the world that, that may disagree with that, but I'm hopeful as a marketer, just like you, that marketing does become helpful. Um, yeah, I've yeah. got... Uh, I've got one last question for you. You're based in Austin, Texas, and I've always wondered, what does it mean to keep Austin weird? 
Yeah, Alan, that's that that's funny you should ask about keeping Austin weird. You know, there's sort of the there's the origin story on it and then there's the how does it get interpreted in, you know, every day around town? And, and the point of origin on it is it came from a lot of small um, local business owners, um, you know, folks who had retail shops and restaurants and stuff. And it, it really um, started to happen in the 80s and 90s as Austin was accelerating um, population really fast. You know, back back then it was 250,000, and we've now gotten to the point of a little over 2 million. And as more and more national chains uh, came in, local merchants were kind of banding together and really wanted to have a, you know, keep it local initiative going that was sort of true to the spirit of Austin. So they, they, that was the origin of the whole keep it weird thing. Um, in terms of how it gets in, in, interpreted, I mean, sky's the limit. Everybody's got their own interpretation, and, and people do interpret it pretty liberally. So, it, you know, it shows up in the way that folks think and, and communicate and dress and act in the style of businesses that are around town. But it's... um. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it produces a, or I should say, it reflects a great vibe overall. Where you know we we can simultaneously take things that are important to us seriously without taking ourselves too seriously in the in the process is sort of how myself and, and my family interpret it, and it's it's part of what made it makes Austin a great great place for us. Well, well, keep Austin weird for me. Really appreciate you joining the show today. I know the listeners are going to get a lot of value out of the conversation. Super. I, I really appreciate the, the chance to catch up with you. And, um, you know, it was thought-provoking to, to spend the time talking through this stuff with you, Alan. So thanks for the opportunity and, and definitely take care. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com